Good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Today is Friday, the 17th of July, 2015. And we usually say uh, we're looking out over beautiful, sunny uh, downtown Sydney, Australia. But unusually, it is cold, wet and windy today on Friday, 17th of July, 17th. <laughs> I've already said that so, uh, in Sydney, Australia. Um, you listening to Kevin Garber and Nick Barker on the It's a Monkey podcast. We have not been around for a little while. This is episode 61. Um, I have been busy. Um, I was in New York um, and uh, got thrown off a little bit with a crazy schedule there. Nick's been busy in Sydney. Nick, hello. Thank you for joining us. Hi. It's, it's good to be back on again after a short delay. It's always good to do the podcast. <laughs> Um, Nick is head of product and front end at Manage Flutter. I'm CEO and uh, co-founder of Manage Flutter. We do this podcast where we talk about everything tech-related, tech economy-related. Um, thank you for the feedback. And a couple of you have said, where's the podcast? We are still here. We are still around. We still aim to do it every two weeks. It got derailed, but we are back. I'm actually, Nick, I'm going to flick on my um, Periscope and see um, if sure. anyone... You know, while we're calling, eventually it would be nice if we can sort of get a few people that, um, you know, want to watch the record. We, we do most of this live. We do very, very little editing. Um, so it sort of would suit a Periscope. There we go. I'm hitting Periscope. Periscope, of course, is the, the live streaming um, app that's connected to Twitter. Um, so now I'm just hitting. I haven't used it much. Broadcast title. I'll put it. Um, it's a monkey. Um Periscope is a really, really wonderful piece of software if you've never used it before. It's available for both Android and iOS now, but it is a mobile exclusive unless something else has come, in, come out in the last couple of weeks that I'm not informed of. But essentially, you start a stream, point it at really at anything. And, and when I was first using it, when it first came out, I was getting you know 40 to 60 people just randomly joining the streams that I was creating, you know, just you know with me eating lunch or something like that and people would well, come in and we've already got three i'm not exactly sure where they found us but um we've already got three down to one so um also there's a trend on periscope at the moment um for some weird reason people always join streams and ask let me see your fridge or show <laughs> us your fridge so that's something that everybody does uh, on periscope for some reason they join a stream and say Sh show us your fridge and so you know well, a lot of random strangers on the internet have seen my fridge in my kitchen at home. Well, that that's, sounds super exciting. <laughs> um, anyway, we've got a fantastic show lined up for you. Um, I interviewed um, a few weeks ago, I interviewed a journalist um, at um, Fast Company, Neil Ungerleider. He wrote a bit about um, new Instagram search engines, which are pretty interesting. So I spoke to him and we'll um, post-mortem that. Um, but we've got a lot to talk about in the news part of the show. Um, first up, um, Nick, Apple released their, their much-hyped Apple Music product. Now, of course, Spotify has been the big kid on the block. There's also been Pandora, which was one of the original streaming music services. Mm. And there's um, Google Music, and um, there's a few other bits and there's pieces. There's that one that starts with Z, I'm pretty sure. Um, it sounds like Zune, I'm pretty sure, like the Microsoft thing. There's, uh, a, there's, a, uh, th there's also Audio, I think, that, that people Audio, that's yeah. right. And I think Telstra in Australia have a deal with Audio that it doesn't yeah. come to. So, so there's quite a few. I'm a, I'm a very big Spotify user. Love Me it. Me too. <laughs> I think um, if Spotify was around when I was a teenager, my life would have been a lot easier mm. instead of having these super expensive compact discs to, um, to, 
to buy. So um, have you had a look at Apple Music? Yes, I, I had a brief look at it recently. And, and unfortunately, with this kind of thing, like uh, it's the idea of, of getting to, to know a piece of software sort of at a very high level. Like I've been using Spotify for a long time now and I really know the ins and outs. I'm really quick at finding and listening to music that I want to listen to. So, of course, there's that initial learning curve. One of the things that um, you'll notice about Apple Music so it is a streaming service, but of course they still have the iTunes store where you can buy tracks as well, which is sort of like a, it's a, it's a bit of a strange um, dichotomy to have now, especially seeing as on Spotify, you can, you can um, uh, make tracks available offline for free and, and listen to them whenever without having to have an internet connection. So the fact that on Apple Music, if you want to download something and listen to it, um, when you don't have an internet connection, you have to pay, like you have to buy it through iTunes. That's still not something that they've really worked out. Like the whole, this whole iTunes store competing against Apple Music sort of feels uh, a bit off uh, when you use the service because you're not sure whether you're in Apple Music or, or in the iTunes store. Uh, apart from that, they're very, very, very focused on uh, personalization. So the biggest, the biggest thing that they that they're pushing at the moment is is the idea um, um, sort of continuing on from the Beats radio stations that they've had uh, available for a long time. Uh, there's a relatively in-depth customization process when you first sign up to Apple Music and they ask you to select artists you like and, you know, indicate who you really like and pick genres and stuff like that. Um, so overall, it seems like it's really powerful and... And it's it's a it's really interesting as a new service, and everyone knew that Apple was going to enter this market at some point. But honestly, the UI and the experience feels kind of half baked in comparison to Spotify, because Spotify has been around for a while, and they've been iterating, you know, relentlessly to get this exact user experience really, really perfect. And Apple Music sort of just doesn't feel like it's quite there yet. It's it's a bit eclectic in terms of you don't know what what is clickable and what isn't, and how to go through traverse through you know, artists and playlists and that kind of thing. Um, f from the reviews I've read, um, it looks like one of the angles that Apple Music is taking is the radio side of things. Now, Spotify have this, this Spotify radio feature where you, you click on an artist and it creates a radio out of mm. it, you know, related artists. Theirs is a human curated, from what I understand. So they essentially have live DJs around the world or, you, you know, with different playlists and themes and they human curated. I don't know if they, do they, are they actually presenters? Do they actually talk? Do you know? Yes, they do. So it's, so all, so it's, it's more along a, a classic radio station in a sense. Yeah, it's, it's very similar to classic radio, except obviously they don't have advertising because you're paying to use the service. So, so it's, it's essentially closer, yes, to a paid radio station, which is bizarre because, you know, on one it's hand... full circle. Yeah, people want more freedom on one hand to be able to listen to whatever songs they want whenever they feel like it. But at the same time, we're moving back to this kind of thing where now there's so much choice that people are overwhelmed and they don't really know where to even start, like looking for new music. So the radio stations in general, I think, are really aiming to help with the discovery side of things more than anything. I think, um, you know, also on, this, on, on the Spotify side of things, I mean, uh, sorry, on the Apple side of things, they bought um, Beats by Dre, uh, um, you know, for a, for a fortune. And, you know, part of the reason I think they bought it is to get Jimmy Iovine and uh, Dr. Dre, who are, who are, you know, real heavyweights in the music industry mm. and where Apple will be able to really, um, y you know, fully, um, you know, 
surpass Spotify is if they suddenly have exclusives. Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah. So if the new, and there was the whole Taylor Swift saga, et cetera, which we won't go into, but say, for instance, that that does a 180 and Taylor Swift launches her new album only on Apple, Apple Music. Music, boom. Then, then suddenly... It's a whole different, it's not a commodity anymore, right? Yeah. Because at the moment, it's just commodities. It's, they seem to have about 30 million plus songs on each. Um, it's commodified a bit. You know, the new uh, U2 album was, um, of course, pushed in Apple, but it wasn't uh, onto all the sort of, you know, iTunes and the Apple devices for free. But of course, there wasn't an exclusive. If it wasn't exclusive, then it would have been huge. So I think this is still early days, and and Dre and Iovine, you know, m- might be sort of cooking up a few bits and pieces. So um, oh, absolutely, it's, it's uh, I, w- I wouldn't write Apple Music off as much as I'm a massive Spotify user and a Spotify lover. Well, one of the huge things uh, that that Taylor Swift was was citing as one of her reasons to pull her music from Spotify is because that that obviously, like I've I've had music on Spotify before, and the the royalties that you get per stream are really really paltry in comparison to other things. Like if you made a YouTube video, for example, of one of your songs and you monetized it by putting on ads, um, the, the view conversion of views to, to uh, paid royalties is much, much higher on a platform like that than something like Spotify. Um, that being said though, TechCrunch um, published an article uh, that linked to a study by Eventbrite just recently um, that's uh, said that a huge number of, of users now that are buying uh, tickets uh, to actually go to live shows, which is where a lot of artists make their money, um, a huge number of people who are buying tickets are buying them because they discovered uh, the artists through streaming services. Yeah, so I mean, in terms of discovery, these platforms are huge. I mean, they're saying 51% of people are now buying tickets um, to see artists live that they discovered through the use of streaming services. So, so they're, they're trying to claim now that it's much more of a vector to spending money in other ways rather than a and reward in itself from streaming. And this is where music's been moving for a long, long time. I mean, I, mean, th- th- I think one of the biggest line items on their revenue um, is merchandise these mm, days. Absolutely, you know, it's yeah. Just, it's just huge. So the, the industry's really been turned around. But um, yeah, I, I think... I think I wouldn't write Apple off. I mean, the good news is the consumer is going to have a lot of choices, which is fantastic. Absolutely. Um, and and the biggest thing that we haven't uh, spoken about because we're, th- we're talking about it as strictly a music uh, service, a huge advantage that Apple Music has that Spotify doesn't is that Apple Music has the full iTunes library of music videos as well, whereas Apple uh, uh, Spotify doesn't support music videos at all. They're a strictly audio platform. So... You can watch the music videos on Apple Music as well, which is a big difference. Yeah, and actually, I followed Daniel Eck on um, Twitter and Facebook, and on Facebook, he tweeted out. Uh, on Facebook, he posted out something that since Apple Music launched, there's been an uptick in interest in Spotify. Mm. So, of course, because there's more discussion about it, it's sort of free marketing. It's the same thing about the Uber when there's Uber protests. You know, everyone s- signs up for Uber and starts using them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um, I, I hope Spotify succeed. I mean, they were one of the first on the block and they've done... Uh, you, you know, w- one thing um, before we move on to the next story, just just one comment which I, I still find a little bit perplexing about these social... about these music services is that they are an amazing base to build out a social media network, mm. you know, because it's such an emotive product. And of course, way back in the day, um, um, 
MySpace was, in a sense, a little bit about this, but um, Spotify are sitting on, on, on huge opportunity, and they don't seem to be pushing that social side that much. And I, I, yeah. I always wonder why they don't, um, you know, um, you land up in being able to connect with, with other users of your, your favorite bands and, and friends that have similar type of music profile. There, there's something there that they're missing, I feel. Yeah, it's interesting because they started off with this huge idea of having all the plug-in ecosystem. People mm. were writing apps for Spotify. I don't know if you remember that sure. in particular. I used I to use an app that used to ping me if some of the people I listened to were playing live in Sydney. Yeah, ex exactly. Which was pretty uh, cool. For tour dates, it was really useful. And then they canned the whole thing. They canned the whole ecosystem around plugins and apps in, uh, in Spotify. And of course, you probably remember Spotify used to have this really tight integration with Facebook as well, where it would always post to your Facebook. Like yeah. so-and-so is yeah. listening to blah, blah, blah. And, and they seem to have... have um, they toned that down a lot. Yeah, but it's still yeah, yeah. there. It's you, can, you can still, if you click on someone's Facebook profile... You can still see it. Um, you yeah. can still see mm. it. And they, um, anyway, that's, uh, that's Apple and Spotify, etc. Big story been going on in the in the tech world, the social media world, the content world. Reddit. Mm. Now it's a whole it's a whole backstory to it. Um, if you, you know, a lot of people still don't know um, what Reddit is. Uh, Nick, take us just give us a, firstly a helicopter view of uh, Reddit, and then tell us about all these politics that have been going on with Ellen Powell and. Uh, and um, you know resignations and and freedom of speech issues and um yeah sure so essentially um, Reddit is a content aggregation service which uh, literally it, it only it only has a few really core functions one of them is that users can submit links or just text topics um, they can then be voted on by other users and the most popular stuff floats to the top essentially. And when you take that core concept uh, magnified by the immense amount of traffic they get per day, you get uh, what they, they call themselves the front page of the internet, um, essentially. And Didn't Dig used to call themselves that? Yes, they, uh, they called themselves something similar to that. Right. And, and ironically, uh, Reddit was actually first popularized when there was a mass exodus of users from Dig. So people right. think of um, uh, Reddit's relationship to Dig in the same way that they think of the relationship between Facebook and, and MySpace. Um, but yeah, so Reddit is a content aggregation service that allows users to vote and comment on links or topics. And of course, one of the founders of Reddit is Aaron Schwartz, who um, got involved in all sorts of controversial activities and very tragically um, killed himself. And I recently watched the documentary about his life. It's called The Internet's Own Boy. Yeah, and it's fantastic. If you're interested in freedom of speech issues, government issues, political economy issues, tech issues... Um, it's a really a fantastic documentary. I, I highly recommend it. So Aaron Schwartz was one of the founders of Reddit. Reddit then got bought by, um, is it Condé Nest? Yes, they, they did initially, and I think they're owned by someone else now. Right, so they got sold in, but some of the, the founders are still with Reddit. Yes. Um, so uh, essentially, uh, the current CEO of Reddit is one of the founders, Steve Hoffman, um, or Huffman, rather, I think, rather. Um, but yeah, anyway, the, the, the uh, controversy of what's happening now is that um, essentially there are three levels of users on Reddit. There is the standard like low-level user who can write comments and, and, and vote, vote on stuff and submit links. Then there are moderators 
who own um, what are called subreddits, which are basically just like grouped topics for that you can submit links to. Like there's a subreddit for pictures and a subreddit that's just called funny and a subreddit, you know, that's, that's um, you know, there are subreddits for, for different products and, and, you know, for people interested in, you know, cycling or running or whatever. Um, so moderators are the people who have created and uh, moderate these subreddits and they can, uh, you know, change the style of these. And they're volunteers, right? Yes, they're unpaid volunteers. They're users who have decided to make or maintain these subreddits, basically. And, and they have the power to ban people from just inside their subreddits. And they also have the power to delete topics or delete comments or whatever inside their subreddits. So what you find is that the tone and and the attitudes of the users inside these subreddits are often very reflective of, of what the moderators are like and, right. and the big personalities sort of at the top of these things. And then the level on top of those users are, are people called admins and they are paid employees of Reddit that have even more powers than moderators themselves and they're allowed to, you know, ban moderators or close subreddits or whatever. They can They have a lot more power. And so... And if I can just go on a tangent just, just before you continue, sure. which, which another relevant fact is, I mean, Reddit's been quite controversial in that, it, it, am I correct in my understanding, they're taking um, a, a very strong line in, of freedom of speech. They've been, yes. they've been criticized for, for posting um, leaked photos of nude celebrities yep. and even sort of, you know, borderline um, discussion about illegal behavior and things like that. Oh, there's that. been there's been plenty of illegal stuff on there in in the random little dark corners. And the whole point is that it's a very open discussion platform, and they don't uh, they they have not uh, up until a couple of years ago they never actually explicitly uh, banned people just for the content they were posting. So a couple of years ago there was a there was a big sort of <laughs> controversy that happened in the US with a particular group of subreddits um, that were posting, you know, uh, basically they, they were posting illegal content and, and uh, Reddit pushed for a long time to, to be able to keep them there, but eventually they ended up shutting them down. Um, and that was sort of the first step in which a lot of users were saying, oh, you know, it's the end of free speech on this site and whatever. But, you know, fast forward to a few years in the future, and what's happening now is, on one hand, they're, they're um, talking about clamping down even further and, and banning a whole lot more subreddits and putting in rules to, to uh, stop people uh, from organizing to do stuff that they call brigading, which is basically like, oh, if a politician says something that I don't agree with, I'm going to organize a bunch of users on the site to you know, bombard them with phone calls or stuff like that. They're, they're planning to... to uh, make that kind of stuff against the terms of service and ban users, um, which a lot of people are unhappy about. So the freedom of speech thing is one half of it. But another big uh, part of it was this uh, uh, sort of schism that formed between admins and moderators uh, because basically uh, Reddit, people have been arguing that uh, they're, they're a kind of site where they have you know, hundreds of millions of anonymous users viewing to uh, coming to view the content, but only a few thousand of these volunteer moderators who basically keep the whole site going, and they just weren't giving enough love to these to these volunteer moderators. They weren't giving them the tools they needed. They weren't giving them the visibility that they needed into internal business processes. So they were totally in the dark about this whole thing. And of course, to add another layer of complexity on it, the the most recent outgoing CEO, Ellen Powell. 
she um, was fired from one of the leading VC companies in the Valley and she sued them for sexual discrimination mm. for $6 million or something like that. And she lost, yeah. right? So there's all controversy around around her. And she stepped down a couple of weeks ago or a week ago and, uh, and, and you know, and the board saying, well, no, she only stepped down because she's not performing, but she was under a lot of pressure. Um, Absolutely. And, and now they... Um uh, they suspect that uh, she was uh, like people are people are basically the major discussion on the site now is about the fact that they the the general user base suspects that um, unfortunately this woman was brought in as a straw man because uh, she was already unpopular because of this lawsuit and they thought um, people are suspecting that they brought her in because they knew she would be unpopular so she could take the fall for a number of, of uh, decisions that, that were going to be made while she was there and then exit quickly so that they could sort of recoup on the lost reputation <laughs> as a result. And there's this narrative or this, this theory in sort of, you know, the whole discussion around women in tech and there's this one theory that women get put into these positions sometimes where they set up for failure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what they call it, the, the glass cliff, yep. I think. So... So there's, boy, this this Reddit story is really the makings of a um, an epic. Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, I mean, layer upon layer upon layer. And and now like it's so it's almost too cheesy what's happened. Like everybody hated this outgoing um, um, CEO Ellen Powell for for you know the entire time that she was there. And now that she's left, they've brought back one of the original founders of Reddit. So ten years ago when mm-hmm. Reddit was founded, they they've brought back one of the original founders, Steve Huffman, now to be the CEO. And, you know, he's like posting and making everyone happy. And it's like almost, it's almost too cheesy a mm. result to happen. Like, you know, the board saying, oh, we listened to our user base and we got back a, a CEO who's one of the original founders. But people are very, have this very Cynical strong, now. yeah, they have this very strong suspicion that uh, she was just put in there sort of as the fall guy yeah. to take the blame for them, um, you know, bringing out these these new regulations, saying we're going to be a lot tighter and we're going to respect free speech a lot less because you know now now that we're a business that's moving towards having to monetize, we can't have this kind of image uh, in order to attract more advertisers. You know what I mean? And mm. again, another angle on Ellen Powell, which I was reading an article yesterday, is her husband um, had some problems in the business dealings. Apparently, there was some. Um, accusations of ha- running a Ponzi scheme and lost a lot of money and people say, you know, her, her court case was just an attempt to try to solve finances. So it's really, I mean, I mean, you almost couldn't make this stuff up. Oh Holly- yeah. Hollywood, Hollywood would love this. If you go and dig into it, it's very, it's very dramatic. And, very and, dramatic. And, and, and one, of th- one of the most interesting things about Reddit is that um, it's, it's almost as live as Twitter. So basically things there is such a bulk of users voting on stuff that very popular things will shoot very from, real time yeah they'll shoot from initial submission all the way up to the top of the front page in seriously minutes and so not only was there this whole drama unfolding with reddit's ceo but reddit itself was doing the news and documentation on the process as it was happening so you know there were these big discussion threads doing play-by-play of everything that was happening with the ceo and yeah, it's very interesting. You you rarely see uh, networks um, 
introspectively discussing mm. issues sort of that are happening CNN running themselves. a story on themselves yeah. about their internal politics absolutely. of what's going on at CNN. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. I mean, I, whenever I look at Reddit, I really enjoy it. Mm. But, um, you know, because I'm such a content junkie and I'm, I, 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 I love text content, I find I can move through it really quickly. I can be selective. Mm. I can scan it. So I like Reddit, even though I know there's a lot of other types of content on there. But somehow I just don't get to embed it in my day-to-day somehow. You know, yeah. Twitter Twitter's still my – Twitter and Facebook are still my, my day-to-day. I can't even embed Instagram or Pinterest or Snapchat. or. But I guess we all, we all got finite amount of headspace and time, and, well, and there's a pecking order. Absolutely. And the really interesting thing is, I think, uh, given – what your position is in your job and and you know the the amount of time obviously every day that you have to dedicate to running a business potentially your feelings about what social networks are important are potentially indicative of of how uh, appropriate those networks are from from a business perspective because reddit i think honestly incredible time wasting tool not necessarily that useful from a business or productivity perspective Whereas Twitter is the kind of thing that that is more useful to you know uh, media journalists, people involved in business, that well, kind of thing. Well, a lot of people ask me how I use Twitter during my day, and um, I, you know I um, have three screens, um, two big ones, and then my laptop. And my, my one screen is TweetDeck with my columns with different lists, and one of my lists is called Startup and Tech, mm. and I follow all the who's who of the industry there. And throughout my day, these folk tweet amazingly insightful articles. Yeah. So probably. It probably forces me that about 25% of my day I'm actually learning new things. Mm. And it pushes it to me. So from that aspect, I find uh, Twitter adding huge value. Yeah, exactly. So in the same kind of way, it might be that for you, Instagram and Pinterest, um, they're they're made, they're wonderful software, but at the same time, they're probably more uh, towards the enjoyment slash spending time side of the scale rather than than sort of like the insight and, and... sort of business intelligence side of things, whereas Twitter uh, sort of more towards that, that side of things. Yeah, it has a bit more of utility. Mm. Um, interesting. Well, we'll follow this Reddit story with, uh, with, with great interest and uh, let, let's see how it all pans out. And um, you're listening to Kevin Garber, CEO of Managed Flitter, and Nick Barker, head of product at Managed Flitter, episode 61 of the It's a Monkey podcast. We broadcast this every two weeks. Check your uh, software on a Friday. You can also comment on these articles on our website. You can tweet us at Monkey Podcast. You can email us at podcast at itsamonkey.com. If you email us with a comment um, or something, um, you know, and even explain who you are and what you do, we'll even um, pop it up on the on the podcast. So just send us an MP3, etc. We're going to take a short break, and after the break, um, we're going to be playing the interview that I had with Neil Ungerleider, who's a, a journalist at Fast Company. He wrote an article, The Instagram Search Engine Wars, Why Mas- Machine Visions the Next Big Thing for Brands. Stay with us. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to CheckDog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com. Helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. 
You're back with the It's a Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Garber, uh, where we talk about everything relating to tech, the tech economy, social media, etc. on this podcast. Remember, you can tweet us at Monkey Podcast. You can email us at podcast at itsamonkey.com. Now, Instagram. Instagram is one of this uh, one of these social media networks we don't talk all that much about on the podcast. We talk a lot about Facebook. We talk a lot about Twitter. But Instagram's growth has been absolutely huge over the last few years. Of course, Facebook bought Instagram for an insane amount of money, which doesn't seem as insane these days because they bought WhatsApp for an even more insane amount of money. But the growth of Instagram has been very strong and, in, in fact, a few months ago eclipsed Twitter in terms of monthly active users. Um, they were both about sort of 300 million monthly active users. And I came across an article a few days ago about Instagram in one of my favorite uh, magazines, Fast Company. The magazine has been around for quite a long time. The title of the article was The Instagram Search Engine Wars, Why Machine Visions the Next Best Thing for, for Brands, subtitled A Wave of New Startups Can Identify Brands, Location, and People Inside Instagram Photos. Really interesting content in the article. I tracked down the author of the article, a journalist at Fast Company, Neil Ungerleider, who is from LA, and I've got him at the end of my Skype line. Neil, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely, Kevin. Happy to be here. Neil, tell us, um, there's so much to talk about in this Instagram search engine space. Firstly, why has Instagram themselves uh, not not sort of seen um, the demand for a better search engine? You make the, the comments in your article that um, that's, there's all these third-party startups that are filling the space and not Facebook or Instagram themselves. Definitely. And Kevin, it's interesting. I think... Instagram and Facebook have seen the demand for search engines for Instagram. They've just chosen not to actually make a search engine. So if your listeners go to fastcompany.com, they'll be able to see my article where I talk about a new search engine called IN, which allows searches of Instagram for content of specific photos specific videos, but what I found interesting is it was targeted at media brands such as newspapers looking for photos to include in articles and marketing divisions of Fortune 500 companies looking for mentions to their brands rather than for your typical Joe Public Instagram user. So, and you mentioned in the article that these brands are quite interested in, in tracking down photos because Instagram is public. And um, there is no legal issue with them using a photo on Instagram on their publication. So if, um, say, um, in Sydney, Australia, a few days ago, there was a double rainbow that people were taking photos of and they're putting it on their Instagram. In theory, are people is a news publication just allowed to scrape and use their Instagram photo um, and not have to pay any royalties or anything like that? It's a legal gray area, and that's what's so fascinating about that. So whenever you or I take a photo and put it on Instagram, which I do often at least, that becomes available to anyone's general public. There's nothing stopping them from scraping that image, publishing it in the magazine. And in the case of publications, it really is a gray area whether they are allowed to use photos or not 
And this, it depends on the jurisdiction. You have one set of copyright laws in America, another in Australia, another in the EU. And it very much is the Wild West. So you, you talk about Iron, one of the search engines, which I tried out, which is actually pretty good. Um, it's, and even their user interface. And Iron, interestingly, was created by the same people that created uh, Yo!, which we actually interviewed one of the Yo founders a few months ago. Um, so it's interesting that it's coming out of the same same software house. And um, the Iron works pretty well. You, you type in a location and you can sort by time periods and it brings up a stream of Instagram photos. I'm wondering, I mean, the technology behind this is obviously they're just scraping um, Instagram, I would imagine, and they're using smart technologies to identify the location and what the content that's in the actual photo, and they're layering some sort of you know, machine learning um, around that. That's absolutely correct. And when they take these machine learning techniques and apply them to photos, the techniques that IN, which is owned, as you mentioned, by the fellow who created the O app, whose main business is a image sharing app called Mobly, they use these machine learning techniques to examine very basic things, such as how many people are in the photo, whether it's day or night. But even these very basic interpretations of the photo take massive, massive amounts of engineering talent in hours to actually figure out. And in terms of search, for image search, we're not even at the 1990s, and I'm going way back here, Alta Vista or Lycos phase of web search. For searching content within images themselves, we're still at the very beginnings, which is why we are still pretty much stuck searching through hashtags and geotagging of photos to figure out the context. So if you want to search for an Instagram photo of someone wearing an Apple Watch, unless they've hashtagged it or they've commented in the text somewhere, there's still no really good way of actually pulling that up, is there? Exactly. And that's why Facebook, why Google, why Yahoo, and a host of other companies are investing a ton of resources into building the algorithms, building models that will allow them to do just that. And IN are one of the first to commercialize a, honestly, a pretty early primitive version of that technology. I mean, reverse image search has been around for a while, and that's, I find that quite interesting. I, I show people that every now and then because it's, it's quite impressive where you upload an image and it will actually match it with an existing image. Um, on the internet, but, if, but, but that's quite a sort of straightforward use case, I guess. It is, and that's a tough thing. It's really easy for us to tell that one picture resembles another picture. So if we do a reverse image search on Wolfram Alpha or another site, we're able to trace it back to the source. But getting, getting a computer to tell, oh, this is a picture of Barack Obama. Oh, this is a picture of Alan Iverson. That is amazingly difficult to do. It's, um, and as you say, it's very, very early days, you know, but the, the, there's, um, it's obviously great, uh, great rewards for people that will get this right. I, I was at a conference in New York a couple of weeks ago where um, 
is it Stephen Wolfram, the, the, the founder of Wolfram Alpha? That's correct. Is his name, yeah. And he gave a presentation um, about his uh, search engine platform. It's really quite, quite fascinating. Very, very interesting guy. Um, and uh, it's interesting to see that um, he's, in this, he's in this space as well. Um, what do you think about um, Instagram's growth in general, Neil? The whole Instagram versus Twitter uh, race in a way, um, which Instagram at the moment their growth numbers are, are, are stronger. Um, they're sort of both in the real-time social media space in a way. Um, any particular thoughts on what the future holds for them both? Absolutely. Instagram is in a unique place because they do one thing, share images. Well, now sharing images and video, but image is still the main product. And they do that very well. They also have the benefit of being owned by Facebook which is sitting on, for our purposes, infinite reserves of money right now. If Instagram had decided to grow organically and not be acquired, it would just be a difficult conversation. But right now, Instagram has the luxury of being able to sit around, perfect their product, and not aggressively monetize. On the other hand, Twitter is a publicly traded corporation, which, as we've seen in the news this month, had a change of CEO, and they're trying to figure out the best way to monetize their model. Twitter is known by a Facebook or a Google that can afford to put funds into R&D for years at a time while they build a user base. Twitter has very real pressures to their shareholders, to their investors, to show a profit that Instagram does not. I mean, I, I, um, I still remain at Twitter you know, that's still my favorite social media network. I mean, I've got a vested interest. Uh, product managed Twitter is a Twitter management app. But besides that, I just need something about Instagram that just doesn't draw me in every day. What's what's your favorite social media network, Neil? Um, that's a very good question. I think my favorite social media network is Twitter but that Twitter has become less my favorite social media network. Does that make sense to you? It does. It does. It's, and I think for, for people, I'm looking at your account here. You've been on Twitter probably a similar time to what I've been, 2008. So you've been around Twitter for a while. We have. And in that time, the service has changed. And it stinks to say, but services like Twitter aren't made for power users. As a journalist, I rely on Twitter to find sources, to keep abreast of the news cycle, to verify information, to communicate with my readers, you name it. But the community of journalists, of folks working in the communication industry, in marketing industry, in tech industry, who form the early component of Twitter power users, they simply don't click on enough ads. They don't do enough monetization for Twitter to survive as a company. And Twitter is moving more to a straightforward format of curated information, of showing photos, of showing videos, of very much hand-holding the experience, which frankly isn't something I'm looking for. But in the meantime, my favorite social network is still talking to my friends in person, going to coffee shops, 
<laughs> going to bars, actually doing things out in real life, which is still absolutely the best. And Twitter still remains a pretty decent number two, I suppose. Yeah, interesting today they Twitter announced, um, what was it, Lightning? What, what, what did they announce? Is it called Lightning? That uh, cura- Lightning, curate- that's correct. Yeah, that, that curated content, um, the, the, uh, um, sort of event streams, um, where you can follow an event on Twitter and they'll curate tweets and accounts and, and um, things like that. I'm trying to look at what it's, um, what it's called here. I'm sure I tweeted out about it. Um, Secret Project Lightning uh, revealed. So Twitter, yeah, Twitter's becoming in a way more of a media company than a technology platform. And what I find very interesting about Project Lightning is that its aesthetic in terms of automatically playing video, in terms of determining the top events of the day and showing you images and video of it, it owes a lot aesthetic-wise to what Snapchat is doing with Snapchat News. And Snapchat is really interesting. You have this social network that began essentially as a way to share disposable photos with a very small network of people. And now they're actually hiring a full-time journalist to cover the 2016 American presidential election. Snapchat is, is that Snapchat, Snapchat hiring a full-time journalist? Snapchat hiring a full-time journalist. They have partnerships with organizations such as CNN, ESPN here in the States for sports, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and they've really done quite amazing things with their network. Yeah, it's interesting. I've, yeah, I've, I've, we spoke about Snapchat stories the other day. I mean, they've already partnered with people like CNN and uh, I think probably ESPN just for, um, for them to push content within the Snapchat app itself. They have, and Snapchat has outflanked Twitter in terms of partnerships and building bridges with outside organizations, which is something Twitter's leadership up in San Francisco is fuming about. And for social media right now, for Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, you name it, it's weird. There's no shortage of top-notch engineering talent no shortage of people who can make the mobile app more agile, make the web experience better. But in terms of folks who can actually go to a partner organization and say, hey, Metropolitan Museum of Art, Snapchat isn't just for sexting. We can get tens of thousands of young visitors in a single month for your organization. That's something where the skill set is pretty low for and is absolutely needed. In Twitter's case, they've been trying hard to partner with sports teams, with city governments, with television news stations, you name it, and it really has been an uphill struggle for them. Yeah, Twitter, Twitter, Twitter's really this, this, you know, social media network that has, it's, it's, it's almost, I've always felt that Twitter's greatest strength is its greatest weakness, its versatility. Um, since the early days has been you know a struggle to to onboard people and and now part technology platform part social media network part curated content etc it's 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 struggling to to find its way but i think um 
They do. I, I do believe there's a lot of smart people involved there, and um, yeah, we. I'm hoping it's it's all just the beginning uh, for Twitter still. And bouncing back to Instagram and the image question, context plays a huge part in that, and also a huge part in search. For instance, on Twitter, if I share images, they're going out to an audience that's primarily looking for news. On Instagram, if I share a photo, let's say, of my favorite taco place here in Los Angeles down the street, and I post a caption, my friends will get the joke I'm talking about. If I post that in Snapchat, the only people seeing it would be people getting the in-joke about the taco shop. But meanwhile, if I were to make a caption on Instagram about the hard time parking at the taco shop and you didn't happen to know me, the reaction would be a confused, Mm. what the heck is happening here? And for Instagram search, that's been a big problem. Figuring out the context in images and content is a huge, huge issue for all these search engines. I mean, Facebook would have to know that... um you know, there's, there, there's huge potential in that. I actually noticed on Twitter's uh, careers page that they're hiring a lot of machine learning. So they're trying to hire a lot of people in the machine learning space. So um, we never quite know what they're trying to work on these companies uh, in, in the background. But um, Instagram's definitely a social media that, uh, platform that we'd, we'd like to watch. Um, um, we, you know, our platform focuses on mani- on Twitter, but um, we're constantly getting requests to please provide tools for Instagram as well. So there's a lot of um, lo- lot of potential there um, to see sort of, um, you know, where 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 um, if Instagram's going to pull ahead. Of course, Jack Dorsey, who's now um, interim CEO, um, the legend has it that he tried to buy Instagram and that didn't work out, and of course, Instagram went to Facebook. And um, do you remember Instagram used to post inline photos to Twitter and then they, mm. they disabled that and now you only get a link in a tweet? I remember that very well. You bring up a very interesting point. Both Facebook and Twitter aggressively try to share their Firehost data. If we go back a few years, there were all these third-party clients for Twitter that came out for the iPhone for PC and Mac desktops, you name it. And one by one, Twitter shut down access to the Firehose for these apps until TweetDeck, which they acquired, became the only alternative. And you had a few other services like Hootsuite, which were hanging on, but by and large, the ecosystem of third parties around Twitter pretty much were wiped out because Twitter didn't see enough monetization in working with them which is exactly what's happening to Meerkat right now. And for Facebook, that's been happening too, just at a uh, much slower speed because their API is less valuable to folks over on the app side of things. I always thought, you know, uh, Google Plus, which of course has almost, you know, been been, uh, abandoned in a way by Google. And um, I always felt that, you know, a a great experiment for them would be to just open their API um, and push people to develop on their API. Mm-hmm. Uh, people love developing on, on uh, you know, interesting platforms, and um, they would have had something really interesting on their hand if they let all the ecosystem do uh, do their work. 
They could, and that could definitely happen in the future for other social networks taking elements of newer technologies coming up. I'm thinking of virtual reality, not now, but five to ten years from now. And Google wasted huge amounts of resources on Google Plus because they messed up the value proposition. Facebook is at the top of their game, and there is no opportunity, frankly, to out-Facebook Facebook. Facebook came to dominance when MySpace was a dominant social network, and before that, Friendster. And MySpace had huge problems with speed. It was slow to access pages. The UI was a mess. It scared away users who weren't teenagers. And Facebook definitely took advantage of that for growth. But Google could have used their resources in a much smarter way than building a Facebook clone, frankly. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I remember Friendster had issues with um, speed, uh, site speed as well. And in fact, Marissa Mayer, who I've heard talk many times at the conferences, she admitted when she was still at Google, she admitted that Orchid, which was their social media <laughs> um, product that they bought, um, their reason, for, and it was became very popular in Brazil, I believe, and their reason for failure, she said, um, was they didn't scale it properly and it was there were speed issues. So um, it's, 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 it's quite amazing that even the big companies can, can get such fundamental uh, issues right. But um, I think in those days as well, I think it's become a lot easier to scale um, your systems these days. We've got to remember that it's, uh, you know, things have become a little bit um, easier to, to solve some of these big technical problems. So we shouldn't be too harsh on these companies. We shouldn't be, and what I would recommend your listeners watch out for over the next year or two is the growth of social networks in emerging economies. Right now, we're seeing WeChat and Tencent over in China, WhatsApp and Viber all over the world get massive, massive market share because the high cost of SMS text messages in many countries these services which allow you only to communicate with your friends, only with your family, only with people you know, are gaining mass popularity. And I've had the opportunity to play a little bit with WeChat. And in terms of image sharing, in terms of, and my family is here in the States, so this doesn't apply, but if they used it, it would be amazing, amazing for image sharing of birthday parties, weddings, graduations, you name it. And that's where the next big opportunity for social networks lies in these semi-closed networks. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. There's huge, huge growth in the, in the developing um, economies. Um, Neil uh, Angeleider, who's the uh, a journalist at Fast Company, we could probably carry on talking about all of the, the interesting world of social media and uh, messaging apps for a long time. But um, we'll keep an eye on your articles and maybe when uh, um, something else interesting pops up, we'll have you back on the show um, fresh from, uh, live from L.A. Um, really appreciate your, your time chatting to us today. Thanks, Gavin. Appreciate it. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. Manage Flitter helps you to work smarter and faster on Twitter. With Manage Flitter, you can schedule tweets for appropriate times, gain insight into your Twitter connections, grow your Twitter account, and much more. 
go to manageflitter.com for a free trial. Nick, it's been interesting. Instagram's been um, been creeping into our lives more and more. I mean, their, mm-hmm. their number of active users are about the same as Twitter these days. Of course, they're owned by the juggernaut Facebook. It was obviously, in retrospect, it looks like a very cheap acquisition. Oh, uh, absolutely. Wha- what did they pay? One billion? One ex- yeah, one billion. One billion. It. And I mean, WhatsApp was 23 billion. Yes. I mean, y- you know, and, and Instagram is, is, is eating into a little bit of Facebook's and Twitter's you know, territory of the real-time space. Mm. Um, interesting, when I spoke to Neil, which was, uh, which was a couple of weeks ago already now, um, Instagram hadn't launched their own search engine, and funnily enough, a, a week later, they, they announced um, that they've revamped their own search. Now you can search by location, yeah. and you can do all sorts of interesting things with it. Absolutely. I mean, like, it's, it's sort of inevitable that these companies are going to release uh, these higher-level tools um, at some point, but I guess uh, the biggest thing is often, like especially where Twitter's got into now, they're so big and their their software and the the amount of data that goes through Twitter every day is so monolithic that they uh, can't exactly move quickly enough to put these uh, you know high level search things in, which is why they uh, I think one of the main reasons why they open their APIs and allow third party companies to build these nice tools around the outside because small agile teams can put this stuff together relatively quickly, whereas it's a little harder to go through it when you know you have a hundred employees or. 500 employees they're so, yeah, or whatever. suddenly a big company and um, the layers to get things done are, are pretty hard. I thought one of the most interesting things that Neil said, though, so, so insightful was, was um, uh, when he said that, when he, he pointed out that, that Instagram is basically just a tech team that is being backed by an incredibly huge amount of capital. Great position to be in, yeah, right? Yeah, whereas, whereas Twitter is a publicly listed company mm. that now needs to focus on gener- generating revenue. You know, the board has fiduciary responsibility to, to, to push for, for revenue generation, whereas uh, Instagram is allowed to be much more relaxed and to have that sort of future just long-term let it per- vision. Just let it percolate there, put it on a slow boil and just get the product right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the pressure on Twitter and, and the pressure that they're seeing to, to generate more revenue, I, I seriously think we're going to see s- something's going to come out of that over the next year or two, especially with the CEO change. Like, it, yeah. it, it can't it's keep going this way forever, I don't it, think. It will be interesting. I mean, Twitter's... Um, if you're a gambling person and you're listening to this podcast, please don't take my financial <laughs> advice. I'm not a licensed financial anything, but I've been telling a few people, I'm saying if you're a gambling person and you, and you do have a bit of money that you can lose, mm. um, Twitter's an interesting stock, right? Because they're at about $35 per share. They're generating about $1 billion at the moment. Facebook's hit a new high of 90 mm. They're generating whatever, $12, 13000000000 billion. Yeah. So in theory, Twitter should be able to get up there, but also... Of course, there's also the option that the, the two big companies, probably the only two big companies that could actually buy um, Twitter, Apple and Google. Yeah. Um, it would fit nicely with both of them. Um, Apple on the music side of things, Google obviously on the search side of things. I, I tweeted out an article earlier this week, um, I sent it to you about uh, Google indexing tweets yep. and how they... Uh, how things have changed since they started doing... I- yeah, yeah, indexing tweets. So, But will they? I mean... Who knows? Um, Twitter still owns the real-time space, the celebrity space, the sports space, the TV space. People give them people give them a pretty rough time, <laughs> you know. But I, um, I but also I honestly believe that um, uh, really there hasn't been 
very much innovation in on YouTube at all over the last sort of three to four years. And I know because I use it a lot, but one of the biggest things is that I, I really think that Twitter has a potential to own video. Given and, and I think they feel the same way. I mean, there's there's Vime, there's Periscope, and I think, and they bought this this company that helps with rev sharing with the artists, and that's basically. I mean, I mean, these the you know these artists are looking for new ways to get revenue. They mm. also businesses into themselves, and so they should in a way, you know. And if uh, I don't know, I I. I, I, I I don't want to use the example of Justin Bieber. I'm struggling to think of an, uh, another <laughs> celebrity. Tyra Banks, okay, if she wants to tweet out and chat about some product and people click on her thing and, you know, yeah, and it's I just got to be neatly managed and pay back um, well. So uh, I, there's a lot of low-picking fruits for Twitter that I think, and they're a bunch of smart people. Yeah. I, I don't think we should underestimate them. But Instagram, uh, I try to love it, and I don't know why I get – bored after scrolling through my feed for three minutes i think instagram is one of those things where you need either a critical mass of uh, friends who are posting a lot or you need a critical mass of celebrities who you follow who are posting a lot um because if you basically the kind of thing it's the same with pinterest like if you don't follow enough boards on pinterest you can look at it one day and then go to look at it the next day and you scroll for 10 or 20 seconds and then you're back to seeing the same stuff as before yeah whereas on facebook like if you have a couple hundred friends on facebook you look at your newsfeed two days in a row you'll never see the same thing no matter how much you scroll down it's just enough and interestingly facebook have uh, updated the algorithm Mm. Um, and it's I don't know if you, you might have noticed or if you're listening to this podcast you might have noticed suddenly you're seeing things that you haven't you know groups you haven't followed and in a while they've, they've, they've messed with their algorithm yeah um, they're, they're internally trying to determine uh, so so basically they've they've had this data for, for a long time that they've been sitting on this huge amount of data about all of the pages that you've clicked on all of the searches that you've done on Facebook so you know if you've ever um, met someone in real life and then tr- stalked them on Facebook trying to find who find out who they were then Facebook knows that you've done all of that stuff and so they they have all of this this huge amount of data on all of the searches, all the pages that you even got your on. IMs. Yeah, text I mean, and, yeah. and yeah. so they've they've started resurfacing these pages that you've looked at a lot, but don't necessarily you haven't subscribed to or don't necessarily promote their posts. So you might notice that uh, a bunch of pages that you've followed uh, of of you know bands you like or celebrities you like will suddenly start turning up in your feed whereas they they haven't done it a lot before and one of the things that they're doing is using that historical um data from when you've looked at pages and searched for things to to try and improve the algorithm i guess i think people are, you know underestimate how hard it is to create a product that is so compelling that people spend hours on it a day yeah i mean it's, it's, it's really i sit on it sometimes <laughs> and i think you know, it's really remarkable that someone managed to pull off that product. Yeah, you know? it's, and it's to incredible. a lesser degree, the other social media products as well. Um, interesting WhatsApp. I mean, I used to, uh, many, many years ago in another life, I worked at a radio station in Johannesburg, South Africa called 702 Talk Radio. And I saw that they were promoting this week that you could sign up for a service that they ping you updates via WhatsApp. 
I've mm. never seen that before. Yes. Did you know about that? Yes. Really? Yeah. So I've never seen anyone else do that. It's it's quite a rare thing. Like people don't do it much, but they built it in quite early, and and it was one of the things that we were initially considering when I was building this notification platform. Was like, oh, we could either build our own solution or we could just get people to send out these notifications through WhatsApp. I mean. But you know any brand? This is the first company I've ever seen do that. I've never seen... Yeah, I can't think of anything specifically. I know a lot more European brands do it because um, WhatsApp's much more popular in Europe than... And also in South Africa, you know, with with it's, it would be a low bandwidth type of service. Mm. So... Um, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, even turning things like WhatsApp into messaging and broadcast services, really, they, they, there's a lot of crossover in all these services. Absolutely. I mean, the the instant messaging platform is the most bizarre ecosystem because mm. it's really like it's... Uh, I, I think of, of uh, messages like WhatsApp versus Facebook Messenger, for example, or, or WhatsApp versus Line or WeChat. Um, I think of those as sort of like the comparison between Coke and Pepsi. There's almost no difference in the product. I mean, some hardcore users would tell you that there's a difference in the product. But, the, but, but there's a religious following on both. Yeah, and but, yeah. but really the biggest thing is the marketing and, and just nailing specific demographics and, and really launching well in particular, you know, emerging economies or whatever. That's actually proving to be the difference in whether these messages are successful or not. And, and you're a fan of the Telegram server, the Russian service. Love Telegram. Telegram. Yeah, it's which great. I, I met someone else, had a meeting this week, and he also said he uses Telegram with his friends. I've, besides you two, I've never met at anyone else that uses you should check their user numbers because they just continue they are continuing to just explode like it's it's really really big and their whole angle was uh, uber security and of course they got hacked as well which wasn't they they didn't get hacked they got taken offline or they got attacked by someone right so they they got ddos and some of you might have heard of that acronym before um direct denial of service but it's essentially basically these um people just send a huge number of requests to the Telegram servers and totally overwhelm them because it's very hard for them to determine which requests are spam and which ones are actual messages that people are trying to send. So they had a couple of hours downtime uh, in the Asia-Pacific Asia region um, last week. But the most interesting thing was uh, the, the most famous um, uh, period for Telegram was when they gained six million when they had six million signups in four hours, and that's because WhatsApp was down for four yep, hours. Yep, I remember so that. So the whole thing sort of come full circle, and now people are jumping from Telegram onto something else because they were down for a while. Yeah, it's um, it's bizarre how even just the kind tiniest little bit of service loss in these cases can cause such a big product disruption. I guess crazy world of the internet and tech that's why we <laughs> love it um, anyway we, we're going <coughs> to wrap that up for this episode that's episode 61 of the it's a monkey podcast please tweet us please email us you can also subscribe to a list which we've uh, getting some nice subs uh, subscriber numbers up at it's a monkey.com pop in your email address you'll get pinged when the latest episode is up um, and that's pretty useful and um, you can, uh, yeah, follow myself on Twitter, Nick on Twitter. And we'll be back in two weeks' time talking about everything tech. So uh, wherever you are in the world, um, hope you enjoyed the show and we'll see you next time. Cheers. See you later. <laughs>